Well, generally speaking, uh, uh, common sense prevail all the time. So you need common sense. And uh, aside from common sense, you need uh, economics 101. Economics 101 really is not even a science. It's just common sense. People have been practicing it for thousands of years. So you need that common sense. And common sense basically forces you to think differently from what a lot of people think. Uh, so one of the uh, first issues people should realize, especially for in places like Scandinavia in general, is that oil and renewable energy in Europe are not substitutes. Dr. Anas Alhaji is an energy expert, researcher, author, and speaker. He advises governments, financial institutions, and investors on the various energy market issues. In this episode, we cover Anas' early discovery of oil and why he pursued a career in the US, the one-on-one basics of oil markets and global energy consumption, how the world's oil demand will play out in the future, and why energy and oil could give the biggest return for investors right now. Let's hear from our sponsors. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vorneim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vorneim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. So let's just go all the way back to memory lane. So what's the first memory of oil or business or anything like that? Are we talking very young or did it come later in your life? Uh, Let me put it this way. I grew up on a gas station uh, uh, ground. Uh, So uh, people, when they smell gasoline, they get dizzy. If I smell gasoline or diesel, I get homesick. <laughs> so that, that's basically your start to the industry. Yes, my grandfather, my grandfather built this uh, gas station and the house was nearby. So we always played in the gas station. Talk a bit about your upbringing because a fascinating part that I would love to talk more about later in the conversation is your broad lenses. I mean, you didn't grow up in the US exactly. So can you just give us the quick intro into your journey and how you ended up in US? Yes, uh, uh, basically, uh, I mean, quickly, uh, uh, I was uh, born in uh, Syria, moved to Saudi Arabia, grew up in Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, got my undergrad in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, then moved to the great country of Oklahoma in the United States, 
uh, University of Oklahoma was number one in the world in the petroleum field. Uh, so the reason, that's why I ended up in Oklahoma. Uh, it's still among the top universities in the world. It's no longer number one, but still among the top four. Uh, so I moved there. I got my master's and PhD uh, from the University of Oklahoma. Then I uh, taught at the University of Oklahoma for a while, then moved to Colorado School of Mines, which is another great engineering school, um, uh, and then moved to Ohio. After that, I moved to the, I left academia, moved to the private sector, uh, uh, moved to Dallas to work in a private equity. It's a premier private equity that's focused on oil and gas. And uh, uh, I left uh, about five, five years ago. I am on my own wearing several hats now, right now, but I'm still doing the same old research that I used to do. How easy is it to move from Saudi Arabia to US? Was it like a, a big, big decision or did it make sense that you thought this is the perfect opportunity? I got my, my uh, cultural shock over the years. I mean, I was well prepared. I, was, I knew exactly what's going on. Uh, but I got my cultural shock over the years. Uh, I did not get, get a cultural shock immediately after I arrived. Uh, and the cultural shocks were kind of, I think, uh, very uh, strange. Uh, because, for example, uh, uh, I was working in a gas station uh, when I was going to school. And uh, I encountered a, a kid who was probably about 12 or 13 years old. Uh, who came into the gas station needed help, uh, but he never went to school and he did not know how uh, to read. Uh, and you talk about someone who is 12, 13 years old, does not know how to read in the United States. I'm talking about a white person. Uh, that was very, very strange. That was a cultural shock. So I got my cultural shocks over the years in this sense, but I did not get it the, the, the first time I arrived. But, but during this process, was it clear for you that you were supposed to stay in the U.S.? Or did you have sort of some periods in your life where you thought about going back again? Well, um, I mean, I, I really wanted to stay in the U.S. regardless uh, for various reasons. Uh, but uh, the issue within the U.S. is which part of the U.S. you want to stay in. Uh, because it's very hard to find a place where uh, everything you wanted uh, all in one place. So in a sense, something has to make up for something else. That's so true. I mean, that goes for every everything in life, I guess. So let's have the segue over to oil and gas. I mean, you have been teaching on these subjects as well. So where do you like to start with people who are sort of interesting, interested to learn about oil and gas? What are the fundamental blocks you start with when you want to teach someone about the market dynamics and how this gigantic industry work? Well, generally speaking, uh, uh, common sense prevail all the time. So you need common sense. And uh, aside from common sense, you need uh, Economics 101. Economics 101 really is not even a science. It's just common sense. People have been practicing it for thousands of years. So you need that common sense. And common sense basically forces you to think differently from what a lot of people think. Uh, so one of the uh, first issues people should realize, especially for in places like Scandinavia in general, is that oil and renewable energy in Europe are not substitutes. 
people think, oh, if I build more, more uh, renewable energy and more solar and more wind and more hydro, then I don't need the Saudis, I don't need the Arabs, I don't need oil, I don't need OPEC. Well, they are not substitutes in the first place. So this is one of the misconceptions about the relationship between them. And the reason why, because renewable energy is used to generate electricity. Oil in Europe is rarely used to generate electricity. And therefore, even if you double or triple uh, the capacity of renewable energy in Europe, it has no impact on the oil demand, period. Uh, so th this is one of the misconceptions and, and people, they don't need to study it. It's just common, common sense. Just look at the numbers and you realize that you don't need someone wearing a tie to tell you that. So, uh, so that one. Uh, the other issue that uh, people do not understand the fact that when it comes to the environment, you, you, to protect the environment, you need to balance environmental security with energy security, with economic security. If you don't have that balance, you will have none, period. So to go extreme on climate change policies, you lose on all of them. And we've already seen uh, some countries in Europe going back to coal, which is a disaster for the environment. We already have seen some countries basically emphasizing fossil fuel, although they don't want to, simply because they couldn't do that balance. They couldn't manage the balance between those three. If you want to go for one uh, of them, especially if you want to focus on the environment alone without energy security, probably you are better off just going to a cave or going to a forest and live there. That's very interesting. And I mean, when you, when you say it like that, hasn't sort of the, let's say the last few years also basically just told us this fact. If you look at what, what's happening when you get conflict, people afraid about energy security, et cetera, then you also see what sort of the top priorities. And maybe it all goes also back to politics. Like when everything is good, it's very easy to talk about renewables and investing in renewables. But when something bad happens and you need to sort of do something drastically, it's very easy to see the prioritization of the politics, right? I mean, that, what, what you just said proved the point that it's all about common sense, right? So that's how we start things. It's, it's all about common sense and you're absolutely correct. Interesting. So, but given, given that you've been working in the oil markets for such a long time and you say it's all about common sense and one-on-ones, what's the hardest part on your end to sort of either predict or to fully understand? Because at least from my perspective, it also seems like there's so many assumptions when we're talking about demand and supply going forward, but then suddenly, like it seems like when people are predicting the oil prices, it's as hard as predicting currency rates, right? Seems like a very hard puzzle to solve or to master fully. Absolutely. So what we do in this case is we isolate politics and natural events completely from the modeling. So we do our modeling with the known facts and the known trends. And then whatever that is not predictable, such as politics or nature, that comes extra. And that will be plus or minus. So uh, that's where basically uh, how everyone uh, does it. The problem is when uh, people fall in love with a certain trend, that's where the problem is. You have to be completely independent to be able to do a good job on those forecasts despite all the difficulties, despite the number of variables 
despite politics and nature, you still need to be independent. The problem we have historically is uh, people go to extremes. And when they go to extremes, that's when things go wrong. Interesting. If you look at your own sort of research, what do you find most fascinating to work on sort of in 2022 and going forward? Is there anything specific or is it just a whole spectrum that you find fascinating? I am always fascinated uh, by uh, the, uh, how people react on the ground to various market conditions, to various regulations, to various policies. So this is really fascinating in every sense you think about. And the reason why government policies fail, because they don't realize how people are going to react on the ground, how people are going to behave as a result of those uh, policies. To give you some examples, uh, in a country like India, for example, uh, they, they really care about the environment. They really care about climate change. And one policy basically is to eliminate subsidies on fossil fuel and impose taxes, and then you move to renewables. That's common sense, right? That's what policymakers believe in. The problem is, and that's what fascinated me all the time, was, okay, lift subsidies, increase taxes, now how people are going to behave? Well, the poor people are going to go to the old coal mines and take whatever they can get out of them. They're going to go to the forest and cut trees, and all of a sudden, you have the opposite results of what you intend from the policy you impose. So you have all those unintended consequences if you don't understand them because they are all common sense. I mean, if you are poor and you cannot afford to pay, what are you going to do? You need to survive. So we have those unintended consequences as a result. A government, for example, imposed very harsh uh, punishment on uh, uh, um, uh, smuggling, for example. Uh, well, just because you impose harsh sanctions, that means the smuggled good now has a very high price. And because it has very high price, it becomes tempting for smugglers to smuggle despite the harsh uh, punishment uh, in this case. That's an intended consequence uh, to, uh, to this. There is uh, an old story which is kind of fascinating story just to tell the whole, the whole thing that in one of the previous uh, communist uh, countries in Eastern uh, Europe, uh, when they tried to open up, a German company came in and said, look, uh, it takes farmers about two hours to get to the market uh, because there is this mountain between where the valley is and the city, the, the, the capital city. Uh, and Two hours is too late for a produce basically to come every single morning from the farm to the market. So why we don't do this? We are going to build a tunnel uh, through that mountain and uh, farmers will go through the tunnel. They will pay a toll. It will take only 20 minutes. So they can cut the two hours to 20 minutes. And that's a lot of savings. And the government agreed on the condition they are not going to pay a penny. And the um, German company said that that's fine. We'll do the investment, we collect the toll, and 30 years later, we move out and you own the tunnel. So they agreed to it. They opened the tunnel and very few people passed through the tunnel. And the Germans went crazy. So what's going on? So they conducted a market study to find out why the farmers are not using the tunnel. Well, they found out that farmers, because these are small farms, they, they 
like six, seven of them basically will put their produce on one truck and go to the city, sell everything, come back. They, they missed the idea that the opportunity cost for the time of the farmer at that time of the year is zero. So what time they are trying to save for the farmer? All he got to do is sell his produce and he has nothing to do for the rest of the day. So you are preventing him from having fun with his friends for two hours and two hours, four hours of fun. He is losing. And therefore the project failed because they thought the value of time for the farmers is the same value of time for German workers and the same way capitalistic societies in Western Europe uh, think about time. So understanding these reactions uh, on the ground is extremely important, whether in energy or any other field. That's a great, great point. And maybe an interesting segue for you just to get your views on basically the situation we are seeing today, because of course we have an extreme event in Europe that also leads to extreme policies and extreme actions. But the problem, I guess, when we're talking about oil and energy is that to set up new LNG terminals or to do a lot of drastic things, it takes time because this is our heavy industry. So just from a bird's eye view, from your perspective, knowing what you know, how do you sort of reflect on all the pieces you're seeing right now being put in the mix? Because it seems like we are going very heavy on some narratives and policies that are going to you know, have a big effect on the energy mix or not maybe mix, but basically how it flows in the world. First of all, we had energy crisis in most European countries, even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Things uh, basically were crazy even in August and September of last year. So the energy crisis existed before Russia and Ukraine and European politicians basically were lucky because now they can hide the failure of their policies with the war in Ukraine. The fact is we have a major policy failure in Europe for a simple fact, back to common sense. The main principles of energy security are diversity of energy sources. They did not diversify energy sources and diversity of imports, and they did not diversify imports. Uh, of course, we talk about volatility and other things, but there is no time to explain all of that. But those two major issues, they violated those two principles and they are paying the price for that. So even without the Ukrainian crisis, we have energy crisis in Europe because they violated the rules or the main principles of energy security. The, the other problem right now is the, the reason why the market is tight, prices are high, simply because Russia did not cut exports to Europe. Russia did not cut oil production. It was Europe and the United States that is imposing sanctions that are causing the problems. The third point is what Europe is doing. Seriously, if you look at what Europe is doing, Europe is doing the following. Europe is switching its dependence from oil and gas to lithium, cobalt, graphite, and nickel. So they are just shifting from resources to resources. The problem is oil and gas exist in so many countries and widely available even in friendly countries, including the United States and Canada and Norway and others. But where lithium comes from, where cobalt comes from, only very few countries, probably five or six, and some of them are unfriendly. 
uh, we talk about Russia, we talk about China. Not only that, the most of the processing of those minerals is in China. So they are switching from something that is more secure to something that is less secure. So that's the first problem. The second problem is they don't want Russian gas. Look what they are doing. They are shifting from dependence on Russia from a powerful country to an even more powerful country, which is the United States. So they are just shifting dependence, which is a serious problem. They are not solving problems. Just switching from a country to a country does not solve your problems. In fact, shifting to a democratic country causes more problems. Look at Norway in particular. We have more disruptions to the oil industry in Norway because of labor strikes than any other undemocratic country. So in the United States, there will be a time when natural gas prices go up. We are going to see senators and congressmen calling on the US government to curtail LNG exports to Europe because Americans are paying very high price for gas. What are the Europeans going to do in the summer when we have those massive hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico and all the exports of LNG that go to Europe comes from the Gulf of Mexico. So if we have a destructive hurricane, what, from where they are going to get the gas, there is no other alternative but Russia. So they, all, so they are not solving problems. Even building those LNG terminals is not solving Europe problems. You are just moving from a country to another. Aside from this is building renewable energy is not going to solve the problem simply because this energy is still intermittent. Let's remember how the energy crisis started in Europe. It started on September 6, 2021, when the wind stopped in England. And all of a sudden, they will end up either with power shortages or they have to do something. So they resorted to natural gas and coal and prices went through the roof at that time. Uh, so we have some serious problems in Europe, but whatever policies they are adopting right now, they are not going to solve those problems. This energy crisis is going to stay with us for a very long time. And if Americans, for some reason, look, remember what happened uh, between uh, France and, and, the, and the U.S. historically. They had many problems. Even the U.S., remember, they changed even the name of French fries. They called it freedom fries to that extent. So if they want to stop one day, they want to stop LNG exports, they can. So Europe is not solving problems, and that's where the crisis is. They need to solve problems. We are seeing something in England right now where they want to drill for oil and gas in the North Sea. I think that's a good policy if they can do it and do, do it right in a timely manner. Norway basically is chartering, chartering a course that's different from anyone else by just ignoring everyone, ignoring environmentalists, and they are just drilling for oil left and right, and they are finding a lot of reserves. They have new discoveries, and they are going to export more and more. If you had to sort of, from your perspective, then give advice to, let's say, EU, what would be the advice? What are the problems to be solved? They need to diversify energy sources. The idea that I don't want coal and I don't want nuclear and I don't want natural gas does not make any sense. Yes, they are fossil fuel, but they, 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 yes, you can, for example, switch from coal to uh, uh, natural gas. 
but getting rid of a nuclear is a big mistake. So I would use a nuclear and I will expand the nuclear in the countries that are adopting nuclear right now. But the idea that solar and wind is going to solve all my problems does not make any sense. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the next point because you have a great um, graph on your homepage, which basically shows the dependence on oil and fossil fuel. And sometimes you, you have to think like, do politicians really know how the energy works? If you look at how how dependent we are on it. So like you said, to replace it with, with renewables, what time lenses do you need to have in order to make that a realistic opportunity? Well, uh, we, renewables will work if we can solve the storage problem. And to solve the storage problem, we need the technology, we need the financing, and it has to be cheap. And the problem is it's not cheap. So if it is cheap, then we can have a real solution on the ground where we can store energy and solve our problems. So we are experimenting with batteries, we are experimenting with hydrogen as a form of storage, uh, and, and we have all kinds of suggestions that have been known for the last 70, 80 years, probably more. Uh, the problem is uh, there is no quick solution right now. So the idea here is, okay, I understand coal, uh, from uh, it's, it's not good from an environmental point of view, but getting rid of nuclear and getting rid from nuclear uh, of nuclear quickly is a big mistake. Isn't it also um, just um, a reflection on that fossil fuel has made you know great societies if you look at GDP growth and wealth? So given your knowledge about the countries who sort of wants to take the leap and go from underdeveloped to developed countries, how like the energy consumption will need to compound quite a lot in able to give them a great life. And if you're like a politician in a country, I wouldn't like Nigeria, Africa, or India, and you want to see a society thrive, you need energy. So how much is going to compound on the energy demand as well? The only reason why we see Europe and the United States and Japan the way they are now is because of fossil fuel. And this is one of the main arguments that environmentalists, and especially the extremists, I have no problem with environmentalists, but I have problem with extremists in this case, that you want, you don't want oil, that's fine. But please acknowledge the role of oil in the last 150 years. The only reason why humanity was able to grow in this massive number in terms of population and we are able to feed them is because of fossil fuel. Uh, they don't understand that one of the problems we have today is that we don't have enough fertilizers and that's why people are panicking because uh, uh, Ukraine and uh, Russia are not producing or not exporting their fertilizers and the world needs that to feed the population. And, that's, and this is going to feed into food prices in the future. So food prices right now are high simply because Russia and Ukraine are main exporters of food items, especially to third world countries. But this is only the beginning. The later crisis is going to happen is Ukraine is not planting simply because their land is occupied. So we are going to lose that for the whole season. Uh, and for Russia because of uh, sanctions, but at the same time, the fertilizers that should be exported by those countries is not there. So other countries are going to suffer too. 
and therefore we are going to have a major problem because of lack of fertilizer and there is no substitutes and most of that fertilizer basically is coming from natural gas so people at least who do not want oil and gas they should acknowledge the the, the historical contribution to civilization it's a very good point if we are going to take OPEC and just talk about OPEC for a second, maybe also just give them a quick introduction. How are they viewing these times ahead? Because I, I don't know the, the cultural, um, um, how they're thinking sort of like in this narratives we see in Europe, because in Europe, we are very focused on renewables and a green future. But how is this the same narrative in sort of the OPEC countries or is that a totally different, you know, society? Of course, we have OPEC, and that's uh, 13 countries. Uh, they are all uh, developing countries. And then we have another 10 countries. Uh, uh, that's so the total is 23. Those 23 make up the OPEC Plus. And OPEC Plus, uh, Russia is part of OPEC Plus. So two points here, that for OPEC and OPEC Plus members, they did not want to bother Putin uh, because they are part of the same organization and they don't want to break up that organization where they invested massive amount of money and time in creating it and achieving great results because they were able to move prices from, as you know, from uh, like an average about $18 to $85. Uh, so that was a great success for this cooperation and losing it quickly does not make any sense, especially if we end up with a recession very soon. Uh, because if you end up with a recession, you need to cooperate again to cut. Uh, and if you break it, then forget about it. Uh, but from OPEC point of view, what we've seen from the recent meetings, uh, the G20 meeting in Rome, and then we have the COP26 in Glasgow, the oil producers played a significant role in both meetings. First of all, in both meetings, we've seen a division between West and East, especially when it comes to coal. So you have uh, India, China and Australia on one side and the Western countries on the other. Uh, and there was big division. That's why in both cases, uh, the final uh, uh, communique basically was uh, delayed. They couldn't agree on uh, the format and what's written in it and that they couldn't get it out on time to the press. Uh, it was the oil producers who found themselves between the East and the West and they moderated between the two. So all of a sudden, they found a leadership role in both COP26 and the G20. At the same time, those countries, they realized that they have big opportunities when it comes to uh, uh, climate change policies and technologies. For example, uh, they if you look at a country like Saudi Arabia or the UAE, uh, they are leaders in renewable energy. Especially if you look at the UAE, they have even nuclear right now, the first Arab country to have a nuclear plant. Uh, but they have renewables, they have solar, they have wind. Saudi Arabia right now is building uh, solar and wind. Why? It makes perfect sense for them to do so because they have remote areas. They need the power. Otherwise, they have to ship the oil to those areas. And shipping oil to those areas is extremely expensive. So it makes economic sense for them to use renewable energy. On the other hand, even if they use more renewable energy, they can save more oil for exports. They can save oil, natural gas for industry. So there are benefits for them from adopting renewable uh, energy. At the same time, 
uh, they uh, they know that hydrogen is really needed in Europe and other places because it's supposedly clean, and they can produce hydrogen, especially blue hydrogen, from their oil and gas, uh, and therefore they can uh, do all those efforts uh, toward. They call it carbon neutrality. I mean, toward it, yes, but the, no one is going to achieve carbon neutrality for various reasons. But the idea is uh, OPEC members are, are really active because there is too many low-hanging fruits uh, they can harvest. Great summary. Where do you feel like OPEC disagree or what's the hardest conversations they have in between them in meetings? Well, uh, generally speaking, uh, le let's kind of look at it in a, in a, in a way that's kind of uh, tells the story. Uh, OPEC members in particular are not, uh, or OPEC is not a coherent group. Uh, Iraq is part of OPEC. Iran is part of OPEC. And there was a war between those two countries for eight years, as you know. And yet they continue to come to OPEC and meet at OPEC and they left their politics behind. Iraq invaded Kuwait, and yet Kuwait and Iraq are parts of OPEC in this case. We had problems between Libya and Saudi Arabia, yet both of them showed up to the uh, meeting. So uh, it's an odd group in that sense, but they continued meeting and they continued talking about uh, production, changing production, et cetera, et cetera. So by nature, uh, oil is a political commodity, but by nature, OPEC basically was able to deal with that politics for uh, uh, a long period, since 1960 when it was uh, established. Uh, now we have OPEC plus. So 10 countries, including Russia, are added to it. The main difference right now between what happened now and in the past, is that in the past, when we end up with a tight market, most of the countries couldn't increase production. So Saudi Arabia and the UAE would increase production to compensate. And then countries will get angry because they said, look, you walked with me halfway and then you took my market share and now you are increasing production, lowering prices. That's not fair. And all those agreements failed historically. The new thing that we've seen with OPEC Plus is, is something new. And that's when you are asking about what was the hardest. That was the hardest is to convince countries to cut production and convince them that those big countries with spare capacity are not going to compensate. And that's really what happened. For the first time in history, they did not compensate for those who did not uh, increase production. So they did not infringe on their market share. And that worked. But to build that until they reached that level, that was very hard. Yeah. You read an article about the optimal price on oil or the sweet spot. And you said if it goes higher, it's bad. And if it goes lower, that's also bad. Can you just um, talk us through that article and why you came to that exact sort of uh, sweet spot? Yes. So the idea here is what is the optimal price for consumers and producers at the same time? Uh, and there are conditions for that. So there are many conditions, but I will mention a few. Uh, you need a price where investment in the oil business will continue, so investors will get return on investment, where renewables and other substitutes, whatever those substitutes are, basically will not be killed. Because we do need all sources of energy. We need all sources of technology 
we need all sources of transportation technology. So while we want the industry to grow and we want investors in the industry to make money, we don't want other uh, energy sources to suffer at the same time. At the same time, we need a case where uh, economies will continue to grow. We don't want oil prices to rise to the level where it kills economic growth. So we want a price basically where it's good for everyone, where producers are happy, investors are happy, consumers are happy, other energy sources are uh, happy, economies are growing, and therefore politicians are happy in this case. So it's, uh, that's what the sweet spot is. It makes everyone happy. Uh, if prices go higher, then consumers are not happy. If consumers are not happy, then their politicians are angry. Then they are going to meet and devise policies that are harmful to everyone. And therefore, everyone is not going to be happy at the end. And if prices are low, then investors are not happy and they are not going to invest enough. And then we are going to head for energy crisis and oil prices will go high in the next cycle because investors are not making money and therefore they are not investing. So briefly, these are some of the ideas. But, but how, how did you land on the exact interval and you can also share the exact price that you Well, also... I have a model. Basically, I used over 90 variables to reach that. And this is this keeps changing all the time as uh, government expenditures, as inflation, as interest rate, uh, the value of the dollar, uh, other things change uh, all the time. So that interval basically keeps changing. Uh, but there is a misunderstanding for those who read my tweets and there, there were several comments on them. There is misunderstanding here because they thought with inflation, the sweet spot increases. It's exactly the opposite. With inflation, the sweet spot decreases. Uh, so it's, it's inflation is not good uh, for uh, producers because it kills demand. Gotcha. If, if you look at uh, oil reserves, there's also, I guess, a big distinction between having large amount of oil reserves uh, versus you know making that making economic sense of that it all depends on technology if it's offshore on land etc because one country that stands out in that sense i guess is venezuela in terms of the oil reserves but also making sure that it's profitable and structured the right way can you talk a bit about sort of the oil reserves you are seeing in a global perspective and how you think that will play out going forward uh generally speaking we have to make the distinction here between two groups of oil producers. If you look at countries like Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Kuwait, for example, they are very successful. And one of the reasons why they are very successful because they kept the national oil companies separate from politics. And that was a great formula for them. In Venezuela, what we've seen is politics took over the company. And because they took over the company, several things happened. Uh, we know in April 2002, uh, when Pedro uh, uh, workers striked, what Chavez did, basically, he fired them and he brought in political appoint appointees who know nothing about the oil industry. So they literally, because they are not experts, they killed the company. At the same time, the government has no other income, so they kept taking money from the company above the threshold needed to maintain the reserves, to maintain uh, exploration, to maintain production, to maintain the, the integrity of the wells, uh, of the equipment, of the refineries, et cetera, uh, because of that politics. So the government literally sucked the air out of Pedevesa and Pedevesa collapsed. While if you look at other countries like uh, in uh, Saudi Aramco or KPC in Kuwait or Edno, 
in, in the UAE. They separated politics from the company and the company has certain taxes it pays at the end of the year. The rest they can use it, invest, do whatever, expand, do what they do best, which is uh, explore and produce. So the idea here is this separation is essential for the success of the oil industry in any country. But do you also think then that history will repeat itself going forward? Do you think anything fundamental can change? No, basically we've seen, uh, when it comes to politics, history keep repeating itself. We've seen this so many times in the past and just keep coming back. Uh, what, what is sad about Venezuela is they went through the cycle so many times uh, since oil was discovered in, in Venezuela and they have military coups and they have changing governments, etc. Uh, and uh, uh, they have not learned from that from those cycles. Uh, but Venezuela basically was on the forefront at one point of time in establishing OPEC. Uh, they were instrumental in establishing OPEC. And the views of Alfonso Pires, uh, who was the Minister of Development at that time, were am- amazing. I mean, this guy is truly uh, a philosopher uh, who should be ranked like with uh, uh, other well-known leaders uh, in philosophy uh, of the current uh, uh, age. Uh, and uh, he came up with the idea of uh, OPEC early in the early 40s. Uh, but what people do not know is that the aim of OPEC when it was established is to get rid of dependence on oil. And that's what people do not understand. OPEC is not about maintaining oil demand and maintaining oil forever. <clears throat> OPEC was established to move those countries beyond oil before even Europeans and others think about it. Interesting. If you if you take a, a shift in topic over to the investors who are trying to predict and act on oil markets and gas markets, mm-hmm. what do you think characterizes the best investors who really understand this game do you need to have a special, like really understand geopolitics or can you just be a math guy to truly understand? No, basically you, you need, you, I mean, um, the first thing is knowing history is extremely important for anyone. So history is extremely important. The other one is you need to know the politics of it and you need to know the economics of it. But not knowing the history is really a problem in this case. But one point that is extremely important in this case, we've seen uh, funds and companies <clears throat> uh, uh, and countries basically divesting from oil. We've seen some big funds and some charity organizations divesting from oil and gas or fossil fuel in general. That shows that they really know nothing. So ignorance basically is the reason for the divestment. Why? Because you have a voice and you can make a change if you are at the table. If you are not at the table, you are just selling your assets to the guy next to you who is uh, less interested in environment than you. And probably he does not care about the environment. And therefore, you are committing a crime against against the efforts of climate change by giving the driver's seat to a bad guy. If you stay at the table, you can force your ideas. And you can make the change. And we've already seen it. If you look at ExxonMobil, for example, we've seen it that way. We've seen some board members basically steering ExxonMobil in a certain direction. While if they divest, they get nothing. So divestment is really a bad policy. If you are at the table, 
you can make the change and you can force the companies in different direction. That's number one. Number two, <clears throat> when uh, investing in oil, it's part of the nature of the oil industry that it is cyclical. And because it is cyclical, it comes with its own, uh, in a sense, uh, financed literature where you have to hedge and you have to do certain things, et cetera, et cetera, and, and operate in certain ways and think about, about uh, the market uh, forward. Uh, it's, if, you, if you think you are here just to make money and you will ever you will keep making money, and then if you don't make money, you just shy away and leave, uh, this is not an investment in oil. This is just uh, someone opportunistic who will try just to make money and walk away. That's a great point. So oh, given this like backdrop, do you also feel like there are enormous opportunities in the space going forward because so many has opted out of ESG perspective or that they don't want to be associated even with oil? That is like now there's plenty of opportunities for people who really can make a difference and build projects which probably will have great profit trajectory. I think you are absolutely right. We are heading for an energy crisis. I think oil and gas are going to be probably uh, the most profitable sector in the coming uh, years in various ways and for various reasons. And because we don't have enough time, I'm going to mention two points. Uh, the first uh, point is most of the, uh, uh, the, the energy policies uh, that for, or, or the green energy policies or the climate change policies or the carbon neutrality policies are going to achieve some of their successes, but they are not going to achieve their goals, which means that we are going to see a failure uh, because they are not going to achieve their uh, goals. And as a result, by default, the demand for oil and gas is going to increase. And that demand is not counted anywhere. There is not a single outlook today that can beside mine, of course, and I, I like to brag about it, that is counting for that failure. So most of the problem is really coming from the failure of the green policies because they are going to increase demand. At the same time, even if we have enough investment for what is being predicted today, we are going to be short on investment simply because of that failure. The problem is compounded because we don't have even enough investment for the current forecast. And not only that, we don't have enough investment even in the green sector. So we have a serious problem coming and we are going to have energy shortages and oil and gas is going to be uh, uh, the most profitable uh, sector in this case. On the other side, uh, I studied the behavior of companies and governments in recent years in their efforts to reach carbon neutrality. And the results are really disappointing in so many ways. Uh, so one way to think about it is this, that companies and governments are going only for the low-hanging fruit, and that's it. Others who cannot find low-hanging fruit, they are scavengers. What that means is they are asking their employees, say, look, look around and see what we've been doing green for a long time and tell me about it. So if you have a retail uh, uh, company that have four or 5,000 stores around the nation and they have those skylights in the ceiling where light comes through during the day, this has been there for 40, 50 years. 
Now they are claiming that as efforts toward carbon neutrality. So there is a, an accounting game being played by companies uh, uh, when they talk about their carbon footprint. Uh, companies with big campuses, they are saying, look, I already have 2000 trees. I never counted this before. And those trees are 100 years old each and they suck carbon and therefore I have to count them in my green policy. But the, those trees been there all along. So from the world point of view, whether you look at the skylights or you look at the trees, there is no change because they've been there. But the companies are playing the game. Companies, because of the COVID, they come up with a system said, for example, some companies said 50% of the workers will work from home or will work only three days uh, from home and two days from, from the company headquarters. And therefore, I don't need all my offices. I'm going to cut my offices by 50%. Those companies are going to their uh, board of directors and telling them, look, I cut my carbon footprint uh, by 40%. Uh, toward my carbon neutrality policy. But that's, that happened because of COVID. It has nothing to do with efforts to curb uh, uh, emissions. And then companies saying, oh, look, my workers are not coming to work and they have to drive. So I'm getting their addresses and measuring how much carbon they need to get to work. And I'm going to claim that in my carbon neutrality objectives and policies. So those are scavengers. And therefore, we are going to end up what, with what I call the mother of all Enrons. You know, Enron, the company, because of all the uh, accounting uh, things they've done. Now we have this carbon accounting that's going to be worse than anything we've seen in the world. So it's not Madoff anymore. It's not Enron. It's going to be the carbon accounting that where uh, uh, most of the uh, problems uh, are going to be and most of the uh, fake accounting is going to take place. So because of that, oil demand is going to continue going up. Gas demand is going to continue going up, but it's going to be higher than any other forecast. We don't have enough investment. Therefore, we have energy crisis. So those existing companies are going to benefit greatly because they are already there and prices are very high. And there is nothing can be done about it. Do you see any scenario if you go a bit ahead, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, where you say, okay, now we're stopping burning fossil fuel? Or do you think we just need to have technology that's going to capture or decrease emissions? Or do you see any scenario where the consequences are so bad that we sort of just have to stop? Or is that impossible to imagine such a scenario? Okay. We have, we have uh, an issue to discuss before we get to answer this question. Remember. The election cycles in the West is way shorter than the time frame you are mentioning. And those politicians want to win elections. So it works if we end up with an election, let's say, where we change the constitution, we change this, and, and presidents or senators can serve. Like in the, in the, in the US Federal Reserve uh, system, that's the central bank, uh, a board member serves for 14 years because they want to ensure the stability of the financial system. So they understand that for stability, you need a long-term appointment. But in the United States, we have only two years for Congress, four years for president, six years for, for Senate. So whatever plan you want to come up with, at the end, elections are going to determine the outcome. 
and then and, and 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 then you always end up uh, pointing fingers because when there's a new government, they blame the old one, and the new one that the game just goes forever, I guess. Absolutely. So, a- so the the ultimate result, basically, if really they want to be uh, uh, to, or to adopt a common sense approach, is and and that's very easy to do, by the way. It just balance uh, energy policy with economic policy with environmental policy. Believe that solving climate change will take long time and if we do it that way we achieve better results than to speed up everything and say by 2030 i want to stop all the cars that run on gasoline and diesel and i want to do this i want to do this i want to do this well there are many games can be played and i just want to mention one thing for example that's kind of really funny for example you can pick up a state in the united states that says uh, no, I'm not. Uh, sales of gasoline and diesel cars are prohibited after 2030. Oh, oh, sorry. Sales of new, new uh, gasoline and diesel cars are prohibited after 2030. What that means is, I can get those old cars that are still inefficient and just extend their lives, and end up with country like Cuba. You know, they have those cars that are 60, 70 years old. We are going to end up with that, as uh, I mentioned in the beginning, that the, the, what are the unintended consequences? The unintended consequences is I will end up driving my, my truck for 40 years. It's a great Just point. keep fixing it. Okay. The other one is, since they said it's new and you cannot sell them in the state, all I got to do, just uh, open, if I get to be an investor, I will open a dealership on the border of the state in the other state, in the neighboring state. And I will sell all my cars. I'll get all the new cars from GM and Ford, for example. I'm talking about gasoline and diesel. And I'll have my workers drive them home every single day. So I end up with like 1,000 miles on each. And all of a sudden, they are used cars. They are not new. And they are sold outside the state. And I'm moving to the state so I can get the car in. So there there will be too many loopholes anyway. And the other problem is based on their thinking, not my thinking, based on their thinking that oil demand is going to decline by 70 million barrels a day, and therefore uh, oil prices are going to crash and oil producers are going to suffer, et cetera. Well, if that logic is correct, take me to the next step. I have a car that runs on electricity, the cost is here, and I have a car that runs on gasoline, the cost is here. So how people are going to behave then? but they don't want to go to the next step to discuss the other one. The fact is, if oil is going to be very cheap, gasoline is going to be very cheap, then people are going to uh, shift no matter what, and there will be too many loopholes to shift back to uh, 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 gasoline and diesel. It basically comes all the way back to common sense, where we basically started. Absolutely. Absolutely, and I'm glad we ended up with that. <laughs> <laughs> Just the last question. I see you have so many great books behind you. Do you have anything to recommend for people who really want to understand either energy mix or oil history? Because I'm, I guess you've read quite a few in the last years. Uh, uh, there, are, there are many books basically to read, but I found some books are kind of for the general public. They are kind of uh, very interesting. Uh, one of them is The uh, King of Crudes, and it talks about the... Uh, corruption uh, of uh, the oil industry in, the, uh, in Africa and the corruption of politicians in Africa, which is kind of uh, uh, really uh, fascinating in this case. And the other one basically is on the history of uh, Iran 
and I think this is uh, a very important book to talk about the old kings, and uh, um, it talks about the Shah and the period of Shah, etc. I am fascinated by this. For those who are interested, there is a space uh, that I made uh, just recently, and it is on YouTube, uh, and it is on my uh, Twitter timeline about Iran, and it talks briefly about the history of Iran and the role of the oil industry in it. Uh, so that's kind of a fascinating uh, history. That's the perfect ending. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure having you on. If you like this episode and the content we create, please make sure to check out our newsletter called The Bin Letter. More information is in the show notes. If you want to watch this episode as well, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel. This episode was produced by William Fransen.